This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. We've had some great episodes in the past from folks in the public sector. We talked to the head of digital of the country of France. We've talked to leaders in the United Nations and the OECD and gotten some of their takes on trends and perspectives of where AI is relevant for them. Things that, for me, I think really reflect on the business community and are relevant for business folks thinking about strategy and use cases as well. Today, we interview the former COO and CTO of the Marine Corps Cyberspace Operations Group. Roman Yitkevitsky joins us this week. Roman was actually introduced to me through a leader in the Department of Homeland Security who I met uh, at a United Nations event in Geneva. We had caught up by email. He said, hey, you got to catch up with this fellow Roman. We had a lot in common, had some great conversations about some great topics. And frankly, his take on the relevance of artificial intelligence in cybersecurity is one that I think all companies need to hear. AI and cybersec, machine learning in particular, is one of those not going away trends. It's patently obvious that in spaces like cybersec and fraud, machine learning really is the name of the game. It is going to be the only path forward. Uh, All the vendors in this space are integrating more and more of these technologies to be able to be more robust and deal with the more nimble challenges out there in the world. And there's hardly anybody who knows more about those challenges out there in the world than the United States Department of Defense. So Roman's perspective on where machine learning fits in, why and how it's relevant, I think will be useful for folks who have business on their mind too. Again, I really like to pull in perspective from outside of business and draw the relevancy uh, for some of you listeners who are tuned in. If you also enjoy doing that, if you like pulling in different trends, and if you like being able to find trends in your sector or sectors that you're interested in, you might want to download our guide called Three Ways to Find AI Trends in Any Sector. This is a short PDF brief. You can go to emerj.com slash T3. That's the letter T is in trends and then the number three, emerj.com slash T3. And you can download our guide for three ways to find AI trends in any sector. Again, I like to pull from public sector, private sector, connect the dots and find a big picture that matters. I know that's what matters for our Emerge Plus members. Uh, You don't have to be a Emerge Plus member to download this resource. It's actually free. So it's emerj.com slash T3. Without further ado, this is Roman, the former COO and CTO of the Marine Corps Cyberspace Operations Group here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Roman, given your background in working in cybersecurity in the Department of Defense, I kind of wanted to get a high-level picture on what the big cyber priorities are within the DOD and also where AI fits into that mix, because there's obviously a lot of other elements, but, you know, AI being kind of some part of it. Could you give us a, a big picture? Sure. I think that the single largest element central to everything is a public-private partnership. It's not the government going it alone. It's not the government taking care of everybody else. It's the government working with private companies, with NGOs, with other levels of government in order to ensure the priorities of our nation's defense are adhered to at every level and that all Americans are taken care of. So it sounds like, you know, when it comes to cyber priorities, that partnership is actually that big of a deal. I mean, that that's a huge to respond immediately with that makes it makes it seem like combining private and public is a huge just priority for the DOD writ large. Is it is it at that level where like there's that much emphasis on that? Absolutely. The DOD is not, for example, the premier expert on artificial intelligence. In order for us to engage with those who are top most in their field, we have to keep the doors open. We have to permit two-way communications, and we have to be receptive to ideas that we don't think of. You've been a part, I guess, of the early phases of this kind of 
partnership opening up. I've heard anecdotally, I mean, we're in communications with both at a kind of friendly level as well as, you know, a business level, people in the the U.S. defense world who've, who've made it pretty clear that there are more and more efforts over the last, let's say, three years, four years, even the last 12 months to make this private public partnership more of a a reality and, and kind of less friction to actually make that uh, come alive. What has what has been the progress there in cybersecurity specifically? Obviously, that's your world. What's evolved to actually let that happen? Because from what I remember, from what I think, that wasn't always the case. Right. The government has had more or less interactions with the with the private space, especially with regards to high technology, and it's ebbed and flowed with various administrations and various levels of government. When we look at the development and the procurement of key technological enablers, we have to focus on those who are top in their areas of expertise, but that are also willing and able to inject inject their technologies. That means that they have to be at a level of maturity where it can be digested properly, and that they are also receptive to amendment and adjustment of those technologies so that they may better suit the particular mission profiles we are looking for. The DOD is not trying to do everything. We only have a very limited mission set. Looking at the COVID-19 response, for example, you saw the government leaned on specifically for some medical support, but primarily looking at security response, primarily looking at engineering support to build things or to uh, provide some physical plant, some infrastructural support. There wasn't very much leaning on the government for cybersecurity, for example. There wasn't very much leaning on the government for other levels of technology. But what we can do as things progress and as we grow more mature as a nation in cooperation with the public and the private sector is harmonize those a little bit more efficiently so we could develop a whole of society and whole of nation response to world changing cataclysms like yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. And well, then, you know, we can imagine we'll run into more of those potentially within our lifetime. Hopefully nothing exactly like this one, but um, clearly it's indicative of the kind of grand disruption we can face. I've sort of heard that the way that things used to operate in terms of, you know, interaction with, you know, the DOD and, and sort of the provider vendor ecosystem is that you have your your big, you know, north of Grumman's or whatnot of the world who are the, the defense contractors. And that often those sort of locked in relationships are, are going to be able to handle a lot of what the DOD's needs are. Obviously for AI, the ecosystem is much more dispersed than those existing players um, who can provide tanks, let's say. What has been required to open that aperture up and create more contact points with those people? I know you recently sent me something on LinkedIn about, I think, some existing efforts in that space. What has evolved to make that partnership more fluid, I guess? Probably the single largest element is the cybersecurity maturity model certification. Version 1.0 was released in January 31st, 2020. That has had a traditional approach to security combined with some of the modern requirements. So it was drafted with input from federally funded research and development centers with industry and other research organizations. The idea was to develop tools to implement, to monitor, and to certify the security of information technology and ensure that those items were applied every transaction with the government so that as we procure from the Lockheed's and the Boeings. We also procure from mom and pop through the small business initiatives to also get the same level of scrutiny and the same standard of equipment and services. Okay. So certifications, and obviously, you know, mom and pops could be a small business. I presume small by by our framing here could also mean the tech startups. Maybe they've raised 10 or 20 mil 
you know, in the Bay Area or something, we might not call them mom and pop, but they're, they're certainly not North of Grumman or, or uh, you know, Lockheed Martin or something like that. So, okay, so certifications allows the government to say, okay, you're a safe partner to potentially work with. You've gone through, you know, the, the hoops and checks to, to make sure that, that, you know, we're ready to potentially engage and now we can make this happen. Is certification going to be something that you think expands? In other words, you know, that's for, for CyberSec. Will there be a number of additional ones? I know NIST is doing all kinds of ranking for computer vision and other kinds of applications. Maybe maybe some of that information will be able to you know, certify vendors for other tech. Do you see that as a dynamic that will grow? Absolutely. And it is, as you described it, a dynamic. It changes constantly depending on the various inputs. When you look at NIST and the risk management framework, and you look at what's going on with CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model from the DOD, and you take those together with the guidance from Jim Gertz at Dawn, for example, where he provided a memo to inform the contractors who engage with the government on what their level of expectation should be so far as their provision of security, it's a little bit more flexible than it once was. It's not just a simple matter of the contract says X and so I delivered X. Well, if you delivered X, but you didn't consider Y and it comes to, uh, and it comes to pass that vulnerability Y now, <laughs> leads to an exploit against X, well, you didn't actually give me something. You didn't perform the due diligence to ensure that what you provided the government was actually up to the requirement. Got it. Um, yeah. And so I imagine these things will be consistently evolving in different ways. The certifications will evolve. People will have to kind of retest skills and technology and make sure that it's up to snuff. But it sounds like with more and more such certifications, if they could be made available, then that'll allow the government to feel more comfortable connecting to a lot more nodes, potentially smaller, more nimble nodes that are expert in different kinds of skills. In the world of cyber, we have this certification dynamic. I imagine the other side of the coin is also just kind of letting the private sector know that this is possible, right? When I first had my conversation with you, you know, a couple of weeks ago before we did this interview, you know, I was sort of surprised by you know, how much of an effort there was and how much of an emphasis um, you know you had put on this public private partnership dynamic and I thought to myself, man, when I lived in the Bay Area for years you know and interacted with oodles of of companies and you know some of them maybe Kristen Cross with defense a little bit, I really wasn't aware that any of them could get pulled in for those kinds of projects, whether you know cybersecurity as you and I are talking about or some other initiative of defense it just I wasn't even aware that those doors were open. What does it look like to get that awareness up? I imagine some companies would want to be involved. A, it's it's potentially business, but B, you know, they have a genuine interest in national security. What does it look like to get the word out for lack of better terms? Well, it looks tough. It's very <laughs> yeah. hard to get it's hard to get people to understand that the doors are in fact open. And not just doors, but windows, and we might even put a hole in the wall too, <laughs> if you really came in and we wanted you that badly. <laughs> So, you know, one thing that really I would like to focus on is the NICE framework, right? So the National Initiative for Cyberspace Education that's coming out of NIST in the DOD, we work very closely with private educational institutions in order to ensure that people are being trained to a similar standard. Certifications aren't the be all end all. We know that the proof is in the pudding. Whether or not someone is able to execute their task may have nothing to do with the certificates that they may hang on their wall. So what we would like to do is ensure that Young people have access to science, to the traditional technology, engineering, math, the STEMs, the STEM courses that are required in order to build sound, productive members of the future economy, and that we then ensure that they also know what their options are in the world, not just in the government and not just in the private sector of the United States, but when we look at technology, it really is global in its prospects. 
So you have to start thinking globally. We keep talking about that act locally and think globally, but it really does have that impact. And when you look at cyberspace where there are no national boundaries, it hits you in the face from day one. Huh. So you see NICE as potentially a conduit to, it sounds as though this is kind of working through education, not necessarily just certification to make sure that people's skills are, are up to snuff. Does NICE also serve the purpose of of letting people know that those doors are open to some degree? Like, is, is that also part of the let them know effort on some level? A- absolutely, because okay. the programs that are involved with developing these educational tracks can lead to certification, but don't always do so. Not everyone who has access to education has access to a path towards certification. It's not easy to get those things paid for. They can be pretty costly. But what you can do is open the door to someone, show them that this potential is out there and that they can work in the field and perhaps using the apprentice journeyman master model move forward with or independent of certifications. But it allows people then to touch the atmosphere of the cyber world and see whether or not that's something that works for them because not everyone really is suited to this. And when you want to open the aperture for these folks, you want to make sure that those who are inclined and are best suited to enter the door. Got it. Okay, so this is this is a way of, and is this normally through traditional, you know, universities of sorts? That this these would be the people that this nice framework would kind of touch. In many cases, yes, but okay. you know, the DHS also uses Cyber Patriots, for example, and their program touches kids at the high school level. Uh, in the Marine Corps ourselves, we work with Marine Corps Systems Command and others to deliver STEM education and STEM classes and camps to young Marines and to young people all over the country to ensure that they have access to something like this. And if this is the way that we can fill the bench of cyber professionals in the government, that's fantastic. Even better if we can do that for the entire nation. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so there's a number of these educational initiatives. And I think I was vaguely aware that there were programs like this where the Army or the Marines or whatnot would kind of you know set up workshops of some kind and just let people know that this is a career path, that maybe there's some interesting things that might resonate with their people's skill sets. So, so this is a way of kind of, you know, building that bench early as people are getting educated, we're sort of ringing that bell a little bit to say, hey, you know, uh, there's some cutting edge stuff happening here. You know, this is being used in these ways that maybe are of interest for you and, and, and for, for, you know, some good for the country. Uh, you might want to check this out. Clearly, there's another element of this. In addition to once, you know, someone has bloomed out of high school and out of college and you know, they go off and start a company somewhere, they go work for Google somewhere or whatever, there's still a need to pull those folks in. And, you know, you would sense some kind of link along about the Special Operations Command becoming more, you know, ardent about looking more at the private sector for AI related tech. You know, we've seen that similar sentiment just spread across the DoD broadly. It feels like where I've heard about it is in these uh, these executive type docs. So, you know, the Army Research Lab or whatever, you know, this new, hey, you know, here's our intention. We're willing to sort of open things up in this way, or this is a mandate. Maybe we've got a quote from whoever's leading it, but it's sort of like, how does this stuff make its way into the, the Bay Area, into Boston, into to these tech hubs to let, you know, startups know they could be pulled in or experts know that they could pulled in. I know that the Air Force has some kind of a experimental sort of a startup lab of sorts, like a, in the Boston area, for, for some reason, its name completely evades me. I forget if it was you or someone else that told me about it, but they have some kind of a little hacker lab where they, they run events and you know, different kinds of competitions. So that, that's one. What, what else is involved in that expanded picture for, for the you know, reaching companies in addition to reaching students? What's going to have to be in that mix, in your opinion? Sure. I think we were talking about the organizations that 
like Softworks, NavalX, Afworks. These are traditional organizations that tie into the uniform services, which say, hey, how do I create software developers internal to the to the military so that I can meet my custom requirements by people in uniform? And that's a very niche capability and it's a very niche requirement. So it's not that broad, but we do have broader engagements. And those include the interactions we have with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. They routinely hold events in cities and in schools all across the country and across the world, frankly, that bring to bear many of the interests across a professional sphere much greater than AI and robotics and machine learning. And they really bring many of the things that we find important to the fore, or and perhaps even some of the things that we don't know are going to be important so that they are available. For example, biotechnology, such that you can respond to a COVID or another future pandemic with some level of assurance. In the current environment where we have COVID that precludes us from going out and mixing amongst the communities and those military recruiters or those military activities engaging with the civilian population on the streets, as it were, we have to go online. And many of those online forums are backed by foundations. These are foundations who are people who might or might not have been members of the military. They have an understanding and they have a desire to continue to serve. Because of that, they open the doors and they create forums by which you can share information. And so you have the Cyber Bytes Foundation, you have the Military Cyber Professionals Association, you have CSFI, the Cybersecurity Forum Initiative. These are all groups that bring together people who are interested in cybersecurity and in advanced technologies and bring those between the public-private partners who negotiate that little thin line because in many cases, these are contractual obligations that are held between the government and non-government entities. And you don't have to, uh, I'm sorry, and you have the capacity to understand only so much of a particular topic before it gets too deep. And you'll need some external essay to help you understand and negotiate the path forward. Got it. Okay. So yeah, that's a whole nother branch of the ecosystem. So it's like we have the educational efforts to engage high school and college folks. We have, you know, certification programs. We have these sort of, you know, you had mentioned CSFI, you mentioned the Cyber Bytes group who are kind of looping these folks in. Those are efforts in, in cyber. By your estimation, I'm just curious, you know, when you think about what is it going to take to kind of pull in the requisite AI talent that we're going to need, are there other steps that when you look forward and you say, all right, well, based on what I think we're going to need for, you know, artificial intelligence skills and, and abilities in, in the Marines or in the DOD, I really think we're going to need more of X when it comes to that public-private partnership, when it comes to you know upgrading our, our skills as, as we're going to need to do. Uh, what, what comes to mind for you there in terms of what you hope happens moving forward? Well, what I hope happens is that the public sector continues to keep the door open and that the private sector grabs enthusiastically every opportunity that comes forward. Yeah. And I'm trying to think here, I mean, obviously, I'm having you on the show for, to, some, to some degree to proliferate the fact that this is actually an opportunity, right, to let people know about this. I'm hoping that there's more ways of, of the startup ecosystem and the AI, AI ecosystem of knowing all those uh, windows, doors, and like you said, holes in the wall that they could potentially walk through. If uh, someone's listening in and they're like, all right, well, where would I go? You know, would I go online somewhere? Would I, you know, where, where would I go to find kind of where those doors and, you know, maybe, maybe it's a, a startup that's involved in computer vision or an NLP or in, you know, translation or something, um, or even just an individual person who, you know, works at a Google, but would want to be involved in projects if they could. You mentioned Cyberbytes and these other organizations. Is there 
sort of a hit list of something somebody would do to find where these doors are. You know, I think that that's a work in progress from several organizations trying to bring things together and collate them. You look at the partners at the Defense Innovation Network. They help to bring together some of those opportunities and make available not just the OTAs and those other contract vehicles that are open, but also opportunities for, for folks just to share information and to share opportunities. You look at the team at MITRE and RAND, those large think tanks that have developed the attack framework to wrap our minds around those technologies like cyber, uh, that are involved with cybersecurity and that are involved with rationalizing and realizing AI and its potential in the environment today. But operating in the information environment is a very complex beast and it's going to require coordination amongst a large cross-section of people. I think that there is no limit to the ingenuity of the private sector, and it's probably going to be the private sector that brings together more effectively all of these players and parts so that you can find that single point of contact. That yeah, to- yeah I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I guess, to your point that more of that congealing happens so that people know, hey, you know, here at the DOD, you know, here's, here's the ways that you could get involved in this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff. It's obviously some of it is quite Byzantine. You know, but but some of it is is open enough for people to be able to make contact. At least we have some names written down. I am actually familiar with MITRE, uh, oddly enough. So I know, I know those guys. <laughs> Not all those groups uh, rang a bell for me, but I, I know those guys. Just as uh, folks who've bought our reports in the past. So in terms of, we haven't touched on this, but I'd like to at least lightly touch on it before we wrap the interview. Is the importance of AI writ large? You know, you and I were put in touch by a fellow who I met at the United Nations in Geneva, who's Department of State, who connected us around the topic of artificial intelligence. I take it because, you know, AI and cyber are so intertwined. Why is that, I guess? Where, where does AI fit into the cyber mix? Why is it so much of a priority? I mean, there's broad generalities like, well, AI is the future. Well, AI can help us do new things. But is there anything more specific to that as to why it's such a point of emphasis for, you know, cyber sec DOD folks as you were? You bet. We keep talking about the speed at which things are going and how the modern world requires us to really act on a moment's notice. It's very difficult to do that in human terms and in, in, in human time. With AI, you have the capacity to process across multiple threads simultaneously, and you have the ability to act on those based on some pre-approved rule sets. What we're trying to do, I think, by bringing cyber and AI together is create an ecosystem where the offensive and the defensive capacities of the nation can continue to protect its people and to protect its intellectual property. When we are discussing all of those values that make like-minded nations desire to work together, then you're looking at setting rules in the road. It's when you find those folks who are breaking the rules that you really run into a problem. And what AI can do is help us find those rule breakers and help us identify when there are those interruptions to the pattern more effectively and more quickly so that we can quickly keep them frozen out. And a big example for is ransomware. Huh. Yeah. So the detection of ransomware? You bet. Yeah. Detection and immediate response. Yeah. So, you know, when I've heard of AI and CyberSec, you know, we've had some great vendors on the program and experts from, uh, there's a company called Allure, Cybersecurity, uh, Darktrace, uh, Inaplexus, a whole whole bunch of firms that we've had on over the years. You know, the, the common term over and over is anomaly detection. It's sort of, there's a pattern of normal in the world and broadly what cyber, you know, AI's value in CyberSec is 
figuring out what's different here. You know, what, what, what either matches a pattern of harm that we've detected in the past or breaks from a pattern of normal when it comes to somebody's behavior in our system, somebody's download activity within our databases, somebody's, you know, access to different applications at one time. If anything varies too much from norm behavior, we want to highlight it. And if anything matches known you know, damaging behavior, we want to match it as well. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a market researcher's perspective on things. Is that, is that a, a, a kind of a good way to nutshell even its relevance, you know, AI's relevance for CyberSec in the DOD? Or is there, there are other things we might want to bring up as to why it's important? I think those are important. And when you look at some of the other items that are available, it doesn't require AI, right? So you can use Tanium. You can use other products that help to identify processes that need to be quickly killed, for example. And you can use those communication chains that exist amongst the platforms. And you can pick, you can look at some of the Overwatch offerings from CrowdStrike or from FireEye that help us to take cyber threat intel and combine them with real world observation and uh, some of the indications and warning it and match those up with indications of compromise on your network and then address them. But really, when you're talking about AI, we're talking about leaning into the future and precluding them from affecting our networks and ensuring that we predict those behaviors and stop them before they even can get started. Yeah. So, okay. So the the real goal here is not simply having better dashboards that show us when things happen, but is to actively just put the brakes on things that might be harming us before it even goes down. Like you said, predicting, preventing. You bet. Where we want to get to. Yeah. And obviously, you know, in an adversarial system like this with some pretty big global adversaries, you know, that's an arms race right there, right? I mean, the, the, the ways of fooling those systems and making their way in. I mean, when we've spoken to these AI cybersec vendors, they're already talking about how AI is being used to kind of fake a user's normal behavior as a, as a logged in. So like, what do they normally open? How do they move their mouse? You know, that, that AI is already sort of fiddling around as, you know, the bad guy, for lack of better terms. So it sounds like to get to that prediction and prevention, we're going to need a lot of skills to to sort of get there. Yeah. So in in closing here, Roman, um, I imagine some of the folks tuned in, it's just been interesting for them to get a take as to, I guess, how much emphasis the DOD is putting on partnership and where AI fits into the mix. There might be some folks who have skills or who are vendor companies who are, you know, interested in new business or, or being able to help in some way. You know, if they're they're interested in cybersec specifically, which is your world as a, a vendor or an expert, any quick you know websites references we should list out there for people who are curious before we wrap up today. Well, the one thing I would shell then is the Marine Corps Cyber Auxiliary. Go so for it. Take, you bet. We've been taking people who can bring skills to bear in defense of the government's resources. We're looking for volunteers, those who have some specific expertise in cybersecurity and in other elements of cyber who are willing to lend a hand towards the collective, you know, towards the collective burden of securing our nation. So the Marine Corps Cyber Auxiliary, it sounds like that's Googled, that'll kind of get people to where they need to go. You bet. Cool. So that's, that's the, just to be clear, that's the public-private partnership cybersec wing for the, the Marine specifically. That's, that's their, their sort of connection point. That's right. Okay. Yep. And you mentioned a couple other organizations here. Anybody who's interested, you can go back and rewind through this episode, you know, um, Cyber Bytes and CSFI and some of the other groups were mentioned there, but Marine Corps Cyber Auxiliary. Awesome. Roman, hey, I'm, I know that's all we have for time, but thanks so much for being able to join us here on the program. This has been fun. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here.
So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. If you enjoy these episodes and you want to be kept up to speed on all the new episodes we produce, as well as all the use cases we cover and all the infographics we create here, uh, in other words, if you want to really put this stuff into action and make sure you don't miss a thing, be sure to subscribe. You can go to emerj.com. And up at the top right is a button for subscribe. It's pretty easy. You just click it, enter your email. You can opt out at any time, but you'll get two emails per week, at least from us, uh, every Tuesday and every Thursday, highlighting all of our latest interviews, all of our latest articles, and some of the best of resources from our archive, including some of our infographics and resources normally reserved for paid members. So go to emerj.com, subscribe to the newsletter if you're not already, and otherwise, stay tuned right here. I'll be catching you for our next episode of the AI and Business Podcast.